Teaching is a difficult job. It takes patience. It's emotionally exhausting. And there are always new challenges that arise. Today, we're going to talk with a teacher who's overcoming all of those obstacles while teaching in one of the world's poorest countries. Despite the challenges, she is still helping her students develop the democratic values they'll need to make their communities, their country, and their world better. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Education for a Better World podcast. I'm Mike Soskal. And I'm Diane Smokorowski. Each week we will bring you conversations with some of the most dynamic thought leaders in education. This week's episode is sponsored by GoToScience, a tool that allows our youngest learners the opportunity to learn by going on adventures without leaving their classroom. We know that education will be the driving force for a bright, optimistic future. On each show, we'll introduce you to innovative ideas, we'll stretch your thinking, and help you see ways to empower students to affect positive change in the world. We are thrilled that you are coming along with us on this journey. Let's dream big. Born, raised, and educated in the United Kingdom, Miriam Mason moved to Sierra Leone in 2000 toward the end of an 11-year war to start a school for Educate, the education charity she had helped establish five years earlier. In the fifth poorest country in the world, she has been running schools and teacher training programs to try to overcome the incredible inequality that results from a lack of effective education. Miriam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? So I work in Sierra Leone, which is in West Africa, a small country. Um, when I'm speaking to a British audience, I always say the same size as Wales. So it's, it's um, about between six and seven million people, um, reasonably spaced out apart from the two million that live in Freetown, which is on the West African coast. Um, it is a country that is gorgeous, um, full of how I, I always describe my youngsters as strong, courageous, resilient and joyful, but struggling with all sorts of difficult situations. We are currently the fifth poorest in the world. When I moved out here in 2000, um, we were literally the poorest, but we were coming out of an 11 year war at that point. We are left with just a context that is constantly unstable, constantly vulnerable. So I always feel as if I don't know what the next trauma will be, but sure as heck it's on its way. So um, the last time we hit the news, um, big time was for Ebola. Um, and we were one of the three countries hit by Ebola. And it didn't really hit the news because it was only a thousand um, people that died here in the same time as it did hit the news big time when seven Texans die, died in uh, uh, flooding, but we had desperate mudslides um, in summer of 2017 that killed a thousand people in Freetown in one night. Um, and it's that sort of thing. We, we, you don't know where the next challenge will come from, but you kind of know it's on its way. We're challenged in the sense of one of the things I think that does keep us poor and vulnerable is the lack of education. Way back when, um, Freetown was known as the Athens of West Africa because we had the first um, university in sub-Saharan Africa and people traveled from all over 
the, the subregion to study there. Um, it's still there, but it doesn't have the same status, shall we say, as, uh, as it once did. And although standards were much higher at a certain point um, in history, it was never for everybody. And we still struggle quite considerably with the challenges of getting all children to school. The universal primary education, UPE drive that's been, you know, getting governments to take action since 1990 has had its effect, but we've still got 19% out of school, um, which is a lot. And it leaves a vulnerable population, a, a good number of young people who feel very marginalized. Um, and are easy, therefore, to recruit into not such good stuff. It seems like a lot of the guests that we've talked to and a lot of the educators that, uh, that I've spoken to are speaking about uh, equity problems in their location. Whether you're talking about affluent areas or Sierra Leone, there's, there always seems to be this equity issue that's coming up over, again and again. Can you talk a little bit about how that plays out in Sierra Leone society? Yes, yeah, so, so not only are we um, very much at the bottom of the pile in terms of global poverty, we are, we are also, we have a, a significant challenge of inequality within our um, society. So there are some very wealthy people who have their swimming pools and their satellite dishes and they educate their children in um, the UK or the US or wherever and they get their healthcare out of the country. And then there are you know, such large numbers living below the poverty line. Um, you know, we still have something like um, one in three, one in four children dying under five, um, an average life expectancy in, in the early 50s. In terms of what we do in response to this context is I've been running schools since um, 2000. We started with a sponsorship program that my brother and a friend started after they did a student exchange program to um, Sierra Leone. And they went back saying, oh, we can't just go tick on that one. We've got to do something. When we came out to visit, so my brother came back in. They visited in 93, 94. Then my brother came back 96. I came for the first time in 97. It was clear we were completely wasting our money. Either stop or do something a bit more considered. And that's when we started working towards me coming out to start our first school. So I came out and started on the 18th of September 2000 with 20 kids on the back veranda of a rented house. You know, we've grown from there. Um, at the height, we had 11 schools and we are now, now that the government is starting to prioritize education, we are now trying to give schools to the government. And then we are, we're keeping a, a sort of three, we expect to work with three um, sort of centers of excellence where we keep ourselves real and we're at the chalk face, so to speak. Um, and then we are working more and more on teacher training. Um, so supporting the, in what we call our quality enhancement program. So enhancing the quality of teaching and learning in um, partner schools. Whoever's working with children, that's who we try and, and train. So it's quite exciting, you know, in a country where corporal punishment um, is still strongly in position because of the old colonial legacies of uh, how that all went. You know, we've got 100 schools with no cane, where they are saying, okay, we've got alternative ways of doing things. We can negotiate agreed expectations with the students. 
and then the students learn to hold each other to account as well as growing in respect for each other and the respectful relationships between the staff and the students and all of that. So, so those things then create the foundation for better learning. I'd say that the pedagogical stuff is the hardest to teach, but if you get the respectful relationships, learning still is better. So in general, if a school asks us to work with them on their literacy teaching or whatever, we say, mm, not unless. You let us work with you on the, on the respectful relationships first and get rid of those canes, then we can work on literacy. Yeah, that, that's brilliant. And, and one of the things that I read that really blew me away was that 90% of your staff are former students of the school. Can you talk a little bit about some of the success stories that you've seen from students that have, that have come through the program? You go from, I suppose, one of our biggest celebrations because getting a doctor is, is an unusual one. Um, and April, I guess 2017 now, um, I cried. I got a phone call from Augustine Bundor, who, um, you know, when he first joined us, and this is just the most extraordinary story, he was literally sleeping in an abandoned freezer um, in his uncle's welder's yard down the road. How you bother being concerned about your homework and your assignments and being on time when you're sleeping in an abandoned freezer. I don't know, but he did it and he was so determined and he took himself from there to becoming Dr. Bundor. Well, that was exciting. (laughs) So he's one of our our most, you know, impressive, tenacious um, people that have gone right from, um, he joined us, his mum had got him to sort of mid junior secondary. So sort of, 12, 13 year old standard education by selling brooms and, you know, sort of like just survival stuff. And then he'd come to town to find his fortune and linked up with us. And there he was. We've got, you know, we've got what we call the women's project, which is about getting secondary age girls in who have below secondary standards um, school ability um, or standard. And so we then, take them into a girls only um, class and work with them on self-esteem and then numeracy and literacy so that they can go into the mainstream classes, confident and competent to actually cope with, with ordinary learning. Um, and we see girls who have come in having never held a pen before at the age of 14 to girls who have had one or maybe two babies, something horrific. I think it's around 60% of um, 18 year olds are either widowed, divorced, or married. For girls to get through to 18 without having had a child is kind of extraordinary. So, so often, girls, that's what knocks them out of school um, is they get pregnant. And, you know, in a society that's as unequal gender wise as this, uh, for girls to say no to men is very, very, very difficult. The statistics again on the number that have had sex with a man who is at least 10 years older than them um, and so on you know so so pregnancy motherhood has knocked loads of girls out of education so they come in having been out of school for 10 years or never having been in school or anywhere in between and we've now got some of those girls in their final year at university and passionate about girls education and making sure that they are playing their part in protecting other girls and getting knowledge out there about how to keep themselves safe, that they have got the right to stand up, that they have got the right to say no, that they have got the right to be um, at the front of the class answering questions and having their say, not just sort of lurking in the background and letting the boys take the lead and so on. 
So you have these women, young women who are coming into school that have never been in school before. How do you empower them within the school setting? They go into a special class that we call the Women's Project class. And every couple of weeks, they have the opportunity to do a sort of promotion test um, between stages. So there's stage A, stage B, stage C. And once they've got to the sort of that stage where they are able to then promote into the mainstream classes, they can just drip feed into those. And the way we work is generally very different anyway. So um, in terms of how we manage the classes, so kids work on pre-prepared materials, you know, this table are all working on unit seven, that table are all working on unit 10. We're all working on agricultural science, but everybody is in their little groups. If I get stuck, um, I ask you first. If you can't help me, I ask one of my other neighbors. And then if that doesn't work, then I'll call a, a teacher around. So it's, it's, you can come in at any point. You, you don't have to say, oh, well, it's too late in the term now. Anybody can join in at any point. Once you've worked through that unit at your own pace, you know, with a, with a little chivying, if we're not seeing you making appropriate progress, then you sit a unit test that you will sit. You've negotiated the date with your, with your teacher. It's not everybody sitting unit seven test today. It's I'm ready for it now. So I'm going to put in for unit seven. This, this next table, there are two people working on unit 11 and they're ready as well. And we'll go off into a corner and we'll do our unit test. We get 70% and above and off we go. We, go. we negotiate to go and do a different unit. So it doesn't matter at what point in the term the girls are ready to come and join the mainstream. So then they, they take two, three years to then get to the next um, sort of gatekeeper exam and then they can go on to the next stage and the next stage. That was a system I devised in response really to the extraordinary range of needs. Before we continue this incredible conversation with Miriam, let me take a few seconds to tell you about our sponsor. GoToScience is an incredible tool that allows pre-K through second grade students to be engaged with every area of the curriculum. Students go on virtual adventures, they engage in inquiry, and they publish their results. Every month, we give away a free one-year subscription. To win this month, simply share the podcast website with your followers on Twitter or Facebook. Make sure to tag us so that we see your post. Our website is ed, the number four, betterworld.com. I also want to remind you that Diane and I are available for keynotes and workshops to inspire your group and help them incorporate global learning, inquiry, and PBL into their lessons. We empower teachers so that they can empower students. Send us an inquiry on our website. Now, let's return to the show. When I first started, you know, as I say at the end of the war, you know, kids that were coming straight through, no un undamaged education, but somebody died last year. And so they were fine. They just didn't have the money for this year. Um, to kids who'd been fighting a war for 10 years, to kids who'd been war wives, bush wives out, you know, that sort of thing. Every sort of different background. Some who'd been at refugee schools, I mean, Guinea, and this sort of thing. And they, they were all sitting next to each other in class. <laughs> it's how do we, how do we actually then um, provide a, a way forward for that? We also get the benefit of you learn to be independent, you learn to peer teach, you learn to take responsibility for your own learning. It's a, a country where until very recently, as in this September, last September, um, there's been no free 
education. There's sort of free primary after 2004, but when I started, there wasn't any, and it was only sort of free. But our fees were excellent attendance, still are. Excellent attendance, excellent behavior, and excellent effort. So it doesn't matter how poor you are, you can pay, but nobody can pay for you. And so again, it's all about getting the kids to take that responsibility. The teachers are not here to be your policemen. They're here to help you on the journey that you want to go on already and so on. So it's about trying to set the relationships up differently. And that seems like it's a good time to transition to, into one thing that I know that you're passionate about, and that is using education to promote democratic values. I suppose if you think about it in a context like this in particular, if I am a fisherman or I am a palm wine tapper or I'm a subsistence farmer, the people I can do good to or do bad to it's a fairly limited number. But as I climb the academic ladder and I have more access to more people and being in charge of more things and more people, the number of people I can do good or do bad to grows exponentially. Well, how about I don't help you? I'm a polite way of saying it. Um, if you're going to be a git, um, you know, because you will use your enhanced qualifications skills, knowledge, to further disturb the country. You know, we've got enough people who are using their education to suppress others. I don't know if you know Paolo Freire's um, work. Um, it's very challenging, but, you know, he talks about, you know, you cannot educate neutrally. You either educate to uphold the status quo or you educate to subvert the status quo. And if you're upholding the status quo, then it's everybody stays in position. Occasionally, somebody will drop out of the oppressor's camp and they'll fall by the wayside and they'll end up in the oppressed camp. And occasionally, somebody jumps camp from the oppressed and becomes an oppressor. Well, how interested am I in that? Not at all. What, changing the name of the oppressors? Not at all. So I'm interested in trying to get anybody that's involved in oppression, be it from the oppressed or the oppressor's side, to say, this is dehumanizing. We need to work towards recognizing everybody's humanity, everybody's needs, everybody's ambitions as equally valid and therefore equally deserving of our attention. So that means, you know, working pretty hard at saying it's maths and English isn't good enough. You know, maths and English is important and I want the best, best grades you can achieve, but for a purpose, so that you have the skills and the knowledge to be the best citizen you can be. Not so that you can demonstrate your knowledge and keep other people down and walk over whoever you need to walk over next to get to where you want to get to. So we spend a lot of time talking about we, not me, about Ubuntu, we are, I am because we are. Um, it's a Southern African term and I, it's about being truly human. And in a Southern African context, you are not truly human without your fellows. And I would also maintain that there is something dehumanizing in not recognizing another human's needs. If I am indifferent to your suffering, then I dehumanize myself. And so to get that sort of understanding, but it's hard because everything in a society where there's a lot of poverty says, number one priority is get out of that poverty and get money. And how much is enough money? Mm, there's never enough. And, and so the only value becomes wealth and the only success that you can really 
measure is in dollars and houses and big cars and trying to say, "Mm -mm, no, success is measured in how many people have you done good to, how many people are going to say, thank goodness, that woman with the planet before, you know, and and I, I benefited. Thank goodness that guy, you know, was came into my life thank goodness that person you know got that education because look what they did with it um that's a challenging perspective so when we are talking to our youngsters and and encouraging them to come back and put back it's very much in that spirit it's like you haven't received for yourself alone you've received for your community and you need to be looking around you to see who you can take up with you as you climb not who you walk on as you climb so it looks like taking responsibility within those little study groups and not being okay if Miriam's falling behind or if Michael's falling behind. We all have to take that as our responsibility to make sure that Michael isn't falling behind and what do we need to do to help him keep up. Um, So each school is divided into tutor groups. Each tutor group is divided into families. And the families are peer-led but um, all about the kids taking responsibility for each other, for addressing injustices they see around, for being proactive about planning upcoming events, about planning the budget, about deciding how resources are allocated, about making the place a better place and taking our responsibility for that. So we call that um, EVC, Every Voice Counts. And so it's not just that I have a right to have a voice, I have a responsibility to have a voice. I have a responsibility to make sure my voice is contributing to making the world a better place. Not just for me, but for us. The kids nominate each other for Ubuntu stars at the end of the day and say, you know, I'd like to nominate Michael because um, when I was sad in the playground, he looked after me. Well, I'd like to nominate um, Aminata because she shared her rice with me when I was hungry, you know, and that we're not just valuing, yeah, he came top in maths. We're valuing who's being kind, who's sharing, who's got concern, who's looking after each other. So, so it's, it's very much at the heart of what we're trying to do and for very, very important reasons, I think. And particularly in a country where the rule of law isn't necessarily so strong. I, I think what you're talking about is that higher purpose of education that uh, so many of us are striving for. It can't just be about content. It has to be about developing good people. That's the only path forward for us as a global society, as the world becomes more global, is for us to, to use education to put out the kind of people who are going to make the world a better place. So how we, how we teach is so much more important than what we teach. That's, that's a perfect way of saying it. But I know that you have uh, some added challenges teaching in the Global South. And I know that systemically that causes difficulty. I know just, just between you and I having conversations before about how we improve education, uh, it's a very different conversation depending on context. Can you talk a little bit about some of the struggles that you see, not just in your situation, but um, on, in a global context because of your situation? One of, one of the new ways of being poor is being not computerate, um, which is a massive issue. I mean, it's fairly, you'd, you'd be in trouble as a school in the global north if you aren't providing ICT training and getting your students pretty much, they're used to using the internet, they're used to typing fast, they're used to submitting their assignments online, even by the end of primary school, and so on and so on. And they're using PowerPoint and they're using whiteboards and all the rest of it 
um, you know, if you get a computer in a school, that's pretty lucky. And then you're going to work out how you're going to use it because there's no power. In our schools, we put the power on from seven till 10 in the evening so our kids can study at night. We sometimes, in some of the schools, we are able to put the power on for a couple of hours during the day if it's dry season and there's plenty of sun because the solar will give us a couple more hours. You know, so you're not, you're not only coping with, you know, weak institutions in terms of the rule of law, you're also talking about really difficult infrastructure. Not everybody has a phone. Not even all my staff have a phone and not, not even, you know, to have a smartphone is, a, is another stage up. Um, not everybody has a phone phone of any, you know, basic kind. As many as we can, we try and support to have that because we're trying to build our, our staff capacity for M&E and for, um, you know, keeping data and tracking records and using data to, to manage, you know, and think about how we're going to assign resources. But it's an enormous challenge. You know, ICT doesn't like heat, dust, humidity. It's the practical material stuff is actually quite challenging as well as, um, well, it, it's, it's a contributing factor to all of the other sort of standards not being so high. We are working in our third language. Now, politically, I, I would love it if we could work in kids' mother tongue, but I don't have the competence to provide that. And it doesn't necessarily help them because they're going to have to do all their public exams in English, which is for most of them, at least their third language. How many, you know, children's books in Timini or Mende or Kono or one of the 17 tribal languages have I ever seen? None. Is it part of people's culture to be just reading for enjoyment? No, no. And they're reading in their third language. And so vocabulary is limited and literacy standards can be, can be really challenging. And so when we're working with teachers, one of the things that we ask them to do is to meet twice a week um, as a whole staff to read short stories. You read a paragraph, I read a paragraph. We don't give them a book because that's too scary. It's too big. It's too hard. It's got too many long words in. It's not going to help. But if we give them short stories and, you know, we try and pass helpful messages like stories about female scientists or stories about go get women across the world and across history, um, particularly if we can find good um, African women and that sort of thing. And we use that to get the teachers to feel more comfortable reading and we give them all a dictionary and, you know, but they don't have access to a dictionary. You know, you and I have a dictionary in our pockets on the phone um, and, you know, how do you pronounce that? How, what's the meaning of that? What are the other meanings of that? And two seconds later, we've got an answer. That's just not available. So it does, you know, have an enormous impact. And if teachers are badly paid, which they are, only about 40% of teachers in this country are trained and qualified. A lot of the training is not of a standard that you and I would be impressed by. The teachers may be doing their best. They may not, but they may be doing their level best. It's just not very good. And so we start from quite a low base when we're, when we're working. We talk about, you know, trying to improve teacher literacy. If they've got those materials in their hands, hopefully having read as a staff group, they, they then will take them into class and start sharing those stories. And, you know, how can we respond? Could we write a letter to that female scientist? And what would we like to tell her? And so on. But even 
you know, generating their own sentences for many, many students is a massive challenge. They are used to copying and copying only. We try and teach techniques for scaffolding um, towards that sort of independent writing and independent learning. But it's, it's you know, starting at, a, at an, a low base. I think that is such an important conversation for us to have because while those of us in affluent countries are talking about uh, how to implement te technology in the classroom or how to improve education to keep our kids, you know, relevant for the 21st century workforce, I think there is a, a general misunderstanding that 17% of the world still lives without electricity. And every technology that we develop causes that equity gap to get wider. As we develop self-driving cars that are now on the streets of Pittsburgh here in my home state in the United States, you know, you're still struggling to, to find days where you can put the electricity on for a little bit longer in your school. You know, our and technologies, have we got enough chalk? As the world becomes more global and we're more interconnected, this, this level of inequity um, across, uh, across different countries and, and across different parts of the world is going to start impacting all of us uh, at a greater degree because we're more connected than we used to be. And, and, you know, people are having their eyes opened. So they know, they're starting to know. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the game Temple Run, a video yep. game, yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, it's, Temple Run has a different meaning in Sierra Leone. It's the run from Sierra Leone to Libya to Europe. And, you know, what would you do? You're right. young, you're healthy, you've got nothing you've not been invested in in any way. You're not going to try your luck? And then we go, ah, refugee crisis, refugee crisis, keep them out. You know, we've created that instability right. by our indifference. If we, hadn't, if we didn't other other people, you know, the more distance I can create between me and you, you don't smell right, you don't wear the, the right things, you don't look right, you don't eat what I eat, you don't pray the way I pray, you don't talk the way I talk, you're different. Therefore, I don't need to listen to your needs. Therefore, I don't need to account for your ambitions and desires as I, I want everybody else to account for mine. And the more we do that, the more we dehumanize ourselves, as I was saying before, but also we, we create an instability that will come back to bite us and is coming back to bite us. They're suffering more, but we, it's coming. It's coming. So let me ask this question. Being someone that has come from an affluent part of the world uh, and is now living in a part that is not as affluent, you, you see both sides better than I think most people would. What are some of the keys for us within education systems to help people find their shared humanity rather than to see each other as others? Well, I do think communication. And so this is where, you know, if we can get the internet working and we can share stories and we um, and one of the most um, sort of exciting experiences one time was when I managed to get Skype to work with my kids in Freetown with the cockerels all kicking off in the background and some kids in Banbury, which is in sort of central UK. It's from a fairly rough sort of part of um, town, this, this school, and it's the town I grew up in. And I did my first session with them and then they went off into their tutor groups and then they kept, it was break time and the teachers came out of the tutor periods going, oh my God, who had said something, can you believe it? She's married to a black man who had said, well, why do we have to help them? They're probably only poor because they're, they're lazy and so on and so on. And, 
you know, so those sort of attitudes in the morning. And then in the afternoon, we had the Skype session. And it started with, you know, what do you want to do? And I've got my, you know, the Banbury kids going, hair and beauty, you know, hair and beauty. If you translate from <laughs> Midland accent. Um, and my kids in Freetown saying, I'd like to be a doctor. And the patronizing kids in Banbury going, oh, and I'm thinking, I hope that didn't transmit. I hope that didn't transmit. Anyway, conversation moves on a little bit. Who do you support? What football club do you support? They all support the same football clubs. They all support Man United, Liverpool, Man City, Arsenal, all the rest. Well, sir, could we do a sponsored walk? Sir, could we do a, you know, a, a sponsored silence? Sir, could we? Transformation. They were people now. Yeah. It was extraordinary. I mean, I'm not saying the whole job was done in one afternoon, but we made just dramatic change. And I think that's it. It's, it's finding the similarities and then you can excitedly explore the diversity and you can realize that that's an enrichment rather than a cause for <gasps> put them behind a safe wall um so I, I think conversation i think you know empathy training empathy training empathy training kindness put yourself in people's different shoes there we can start to actually engage kids very natural humanity kids kids are much more humane and wants to they go grabbing for their change in their pockets to give me when i talk to them you know they want to do something now you know so so as educators it is about creating a different you know narrative getting a different rhetoric about where the commonalities are be it the football team be it we all like a particular type of music be it we're all looking at the same moon, but whatever it is, let's create that link and get people realizing that, you know, we all experience the same stuff. I'd say to kids in the UK all the time, what do you think my kids in Sierra Leone are like? They look, oh, I said, they're like you. <laughs> and, you know, they want to be happy and they want to be safe and they want to be in charge of their own lives and they want to be able to get a job so they can take care of their family, just like you do. It's just a lot harder. So that's, I mean, that's where I come from, is creating those links, creating, you know, if it's done through reading a book about somebody that is raised in another country, let's think about where the similarities are. And isn't that interesting that they do that that way? That's, that's fascinating. I wonder if we can find out a bit more. Uh-huh. You know, sharing yeah. different food types, sharing, you know, experiences. Travel, when one can afford to do it, is the most wonderful educator. It's, it's obviously not as affordable as uh, one would like. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. And we have a huge announcement coming up on the show, coming up in one of the next uh, upcoming episodes. So our listeners should definitely hold on for that. Uh, we have a travel opportunity to, to give that exact experience uh, to some of the teachers that are listening. Miriam, we have time for one last question. Uh, and uh -huh. we ask this to all of our guests. Uh, and we're going to ask you to do it in only one or two sentences. If you could change education in, in some way to make the world a better place, what would you do? I would get a focus on kindness and empathy, humanization, finding our humanity, the hard to measure things, because the trouble is that what is counted counts. And so when we focus all the time on what is easy to count and get that universal standard, then we end up forgetting that that's not what makes a better society. 
Thank you for joining us today. Please visit our website at edforbetterworld.com. That's ed, E-D, the number four, betterworld.com for show notes and to learn more about inviting Mike and I to lead a workshop for your teachers. And don't forget to check the other podcast-related goodies. We want to thank Miriam Mason for being a guest on today's show. Credit for music on the show goes to Midair Machine. Join us next week as we talk about indigenous education and the importance of preserving languages with Global Teacher Prize finalist, Belinda Daniels. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and that it gave you some new ideas and perspectives. Through education and action, we can create a better world. Until we're together again, continue to dream big. And affect positive change. <laughs>